Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I am honoured today to have my guest who is currently the big cheese of Hamilton, you could say. Uh, he is the mayor of Hamilton currently, Andrew King. How are you doing? Yeah, hi listeners. How are you going? Uh, hi Reese. thanks for uh, setting this up today. It's great to get a voice out to the people. Yeah, I thought, I thought this would be a good platform um, because it gives you quite a bit of time to get your message across. Um, so the, the first thing I'm, I'm curious to know is why someone gets into politics in the first place. Obviously, in your case, I know that uh, you were quite a successful businessman prior to this. But what was it exactly that made you want to get into politics? Because it's quite polarizing and um, you can be under a lot of public scrutiny. Yes, well, I guess uh, as a businessman, my dealings with council, I found it quite difficult. I found there was a lot of red tape, a lot of rules, and I, I was frustrated. And so I stood for council six years ago as mm -hmm. a councillor. Uh, I got in as a councillor, and then uh, as the term went on, I was not comfortable about the way that I saw things being run from a political level, from the leadership at the time. Uh, I felt um, it was a, a lot about power and control, and I um, didn't really know what to do with it. I wasn't getting a lot of traction, and I just woke up one morning and I knew that I should stand for Mayor of Hamilton. Okay. So it wasn't a plan. It wasn't something that I wanted. And it's <laughs> not something that I'd wish on anybody. Just something that it's happened over time. Certainly not about the money or the prestige. Um, it's a job I absolutely love. Yeah. But I also, you get beaten up verbally. Oh, yeah, I can uh, imagine. Uh, regularly. I I, um, I mean, when I first met you at the, uh, what was it, the HRA Tax and Rates Group meeting, there were a couple of people there that were... <laughs> grilling you a bit. I felt a bit sorry for you. Yeah, I don't but, mind um, the grilling, but um, uh, it can get upsetting if things are being said that aren't true or if there's an article in the paper and in the fine print it says what I really said, but the headline leads people to jump to a conclusion. So they're premeditated before they start reading the article or they don't even read the article and just clickbait. go off the headline. So um, th those kind of things are frustrating, but I try not to read a lot of social media. And um, Well, yeah, I've seen some of the comments, so. and I'm like, I mean, I get criticised for this podcast, so I have a kind of idea, but I think it's a bit different when you're uh, in politics because uh, people hold their uh, hold account uh, to account your uh, your life. They, they blame you if something goes wrong, which is... Not necessarily right. <laughs> yeah. And there are some keyboard warriors out there who are way off track and don't understand the full picture. It's a little bit like criticising the outcome of a court case when you didn't sit through the whole court case and hear the witnesses and hear everything that happened and then criticising the judge afterwards. And uh, But there are also keyboard warriors or keyboard you know, people out there who are active on social media who are very sharp and very good too. So um, I think... Uh, it's important that people who are on Facebook are running under their real name and disclosing who they really are and then speaking from a position where they are being accountable to themselves for what they're saying. Yeah, but unfortunately people don't do that in this day and age with the, with the internet. Yes, but technology is moving very fast and the day may come when a lot of things get unraveled and a lot of truth comes out about who did say what when and um, that's going to be an interesting time should that happen. 
or yeah. when it happens. Well, yeah, uh, technology is evolving pretty fast, so it may come sooner than later. Mm. Uh, so when you first got into politics, did it the way you thought it would be? Was that how it ended up? Or did you uh, <laughs> run into a few things that you weren't expecting when you first ran? Look, it's very different from central government. Central government, you're in a party structure yeah. and you tow the party line and you basically ensure that you get your seats, you retain your seats, so you do the legwork in your electorate, you keep your seats so that the next election you get voted back in. Mm -hmm. um, you may end up on a list, um, but you're far more valuable to the party if you hold your seat and get voted back in. And then when you get into politics, uh, largely cabinets and uh, a top layer of um, politicians set the direction and you're there to give your vote to support the party. And, and uh, if you do anything wrong, the party can sanction you. In local government, in Hamilton, we've, Hamilton Kirikiridoa, we've got 13 elected members. The mayor, who's voted by the people, plus 12 members, six on either side of the river. Uh, six in the West Ward and six in the East Ward. So 13 people total, and each person is an individual. So in effect, it's like there's 13 parties. Ah. So everybody does their own thing. And so when you put up a motion or a direction you want to take the city, and you've got to get seven of the 13 votes. Right. And... So it's like uh, running governments with 13 different parties. And uh, it makes it very interesting. Now, obviously, some people align with other people on different issues and possibly not on other issues. And some people who will naturally um, join with others because they're aligned in their values and what they want and how they see it. But that's not always the case. So on every vote you've got to get seven votes through. So it's a really um, interesting, uh, when it comes to human behaviour and how people <laughs> are and yeah. why people vote different ways for different reasons. So there'd be allegiances with certain people? Uh, there say? are on some subjects, but not other subjects. Okay. So somebody might support you on, say, um, playgrounds, and they may not support you on a rates increase to pay for the playground. So you've got all that type of thing going on. You, um, Some people, um, uh, all they want to do is support business and they don't have a heart for the people from, well, they see that by supporting business that is doing what's right for the people. Um, other people see the well-beings and things like the environment and looking after people and and that type of thing is being important and he prepared to spend money on those things. So everybody's different and everybody has a different things that they're comfortable supporting or not. That sounds like it would get pretty frustrating though, if there's a particular interest that uh, you want to put through policy uh, in terms of a policy, but people just keep saying no. Well, so I suppose is the red tape an issue that you've come into since being uh, mayor? Well, on just going back to that subject with um, this term, we've had a, a, a largely, um, I've had a largely supportive council, okay. and generally um, the direction that I've set for the city, the majority of councillors have supported. And so we have 
Um, the mayor's job is to set the plans and the direction, and then it's up to councils to say council always to say yes or no. And generally, for this three years, I've had a very supportive council. So that's um, the main difference between um, the mayor and councillors is that you set the direction and then they determine the outcome. Yeah, the mayor gets to chair a lot of the meetings. I've um, tried watching one yeah. of those meetings. They're uh, pretty hard to watch for someone yeah. who's doesn't who's not clued up with politics. <laughs> yeah, and the mayor generally um, chooses who gets what jobs, but the councillors uh, can disagree with that and change it if they want to. And then the mayor sets the big plans, like the ten-year plan and the annual plan. He sets those preliminary, and then councillors can come in afterwards and make changes to that as well, or include or exclude things from it. Right. So generally what I'm saying is during this um, three years, I've had a very united and supportive council of the things that I've wanted to do for the city. That's that's good. But yeah. just red tape wasn't one of them that you were able to push through? Oh uh, Well, the red tape, we got we have got a long way on that. We have, um, I would have liked a full review of the district plan. The district plan to me um, makes it very difficult for people to do business in Hamilton. There's a lot of rules that don't need to be there. There's some rules that do need to be there to protect your neighbour or to protect people, but there's some rules that don't need to be there. Why are they there? Um, well, that's why I think that our district plan needs reviewing. I think it's far too uh, rules-based. Um you can protect um, the neighbour without having it so rules-based that it makes it very difficult for people to do things. But it's got to be there for both sides, for the neighbour and the person who's doing the development. But um, we have got through a what we call a REAP panel, which is looking at the regulatory and efficiencies of um, and productivity of our rules and why they're there. And we've just put through, we've been working on it for the last two years, a large amount of changes that are coming through for the city to make it much easier to do business and um, to encourage uh, density and to encourage our city um, to develop and make it easy. We've, we've got a big problem in Hamilton. We're very restrained by our boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Hamilton's the third, the fourth largest city in New Zealand by population, yeah. but we're the third smallest by area. So the only cities in Hamilton that are sm in New Zealand that are smaller than Kirikiriroa are Kaurau that has 8,000 people and Napier that has 80,000 people. Hamilton has 170,000 people, but um, we're the third smallest by land size. So because of that, we've um, the interesting thing about it, with 170,000 that live in Hamilton, we have another 130 outside our boundaries that come in and out of Hamilton for business, for education, for work, or for entertainment. And so if you combine that 130 with the 170 that, that are here and the infrastructure and the amenities that we have to supply, it's for over 300,000 people. That puts us up there at a similar size to Christchurch, which puts us up there close to being second equal with Christchurch in population size. When you go to Christchurch, you get in your car, you drive for half an hour in any direction in the country, you're still inside the council boundaries of 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 Christchurch Council. In Hamilton, six kilometres from anywhere from the council building in any direction as a crow flies, you're outside of our boundaries. As soon as you hit the country in Hamilton, you're generally outside of our boundaries. So why is that? It's just the way it was set up a long time ago. And obviously our neighbours don't want to give up any of their land because that's their rate space and that's how they fund what they're doing. We are talking to our neighbours and we will make progress in this area. 
and we do have land for our immediate needs, but we don't. I believe that we need to be planning Hamilton for a hundred years, and to plan Hamilton for a hundred years, we need to know what land's coming in, so that we can plan it. And we also know, need to know that that land that's coming in, when it's been subdivided, has had set, had has not run off septic tanks, has um, a proper water supply gets rid of the wastewater properly, not through a septic tank system, has footpaths in, has lampposts in, so that it can be urbanised easily. And we have areas near our city, like Tamahiri, where the sections are big, the houses are big, sitting in the middle of the sections, and for us to bring that in in the future is going to be hugely expensive. Now, that's outside of our boundary, but to bring it in with big sections, with big mansions on there, and I'm not against big mansions, but... um, the problem is we're going to have to um, sort out the septic tanks and take them off and bring them into the bring that sewage into the city, footpaths, lampposts, all this type of thing. And so we need to know that our neighbours are subdividing at a level that when it comes into the city, we can urbanise easily without huge cost to our ratepayers. Is there is there a way to build up though, as opposed to out? Yes. Well, we're doing that. Hamilton's got the highest density of any area in. New Zealand. So our density is 1,500 people per square kilometre. Now, there's no other city or territorial authority in New Zealand that has over 1,000 people per square kilometre. So Auckland has less than 1,000 people per square kilometre. Hamilton has 1,500. Um, we have done hugely on infill and density. Um, we've just allowed, we're allowing under the new REAP rules that are coming through for um, buildings in town to be able to go in the CBD to go as high as people can afford to take them. It's very expensive in Hamilton to go tall because the ground's so fertile underneath that you have to dig down a long way to get to a hard base. And even then, there isn't really a hard base there. So uh, it gets very expensive as you go more than about six floors. But if people want to go more than six floors and it works out economically for them and they're not um, causing undue um, stress on the environment around it. So it's um, a positive overall for the environment. Well, why why wouldn't we let them go higher? Why wouldn't we let someone go 100 storeys high? I mean, no one is in Hamilton because you can't, because you're restricted by the fertile ground but and the soft ground that's under the city. But um, So we're, we're letting buildings go higher. We want to encourage higher density and more apartment living in town. But we also um, are encouraging density outside of the CBD as well. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So and this brings us to a big issue of how do we expand our boundaries in a way that our na- where we aren't at war with our neighbours to do it, where our neighbours are comfortable to let land come to us um, and not to subdivide in a way that would cause us problems in a, at a later date. And we are we're talking with both Waipa and Waikato District Council on this, and they're both, um, the talks are, uh, I believe, will be fruitful, and um, the talks are, are um, they're comfortable talks that are happening um, with our neighbours. Yeah. Okay, because I, uh, you guys would have collaborated recently with the Hamilton to Auckland train, wouldn't you? Uh, that was um, largely driven from, um, well, firstly, um, before this government got in, they proposed that they would bring change um, transport in New Zealand and bring more trains in online, and they indicated that the Hamilton to Auckland train would be a high priority. Uh, our council grabbed that with both hands. Uh, one councillor in particular, uh, Dave McPherson, councillor Dave McPherson, has been around for a long time. He uh, really pushed hard. He uh, got a report put, got 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 a report together and working closely with um, Waikato Regional Council, which is the council that's over the whole lot who look after the public transport. 
Uh, we got the paper together. We worked closely with Full Twyford, Minister Full Twyford, who um, was very cooperative and really helped to get this through as well. And central governments gave our city a hundred and or gave our the, to set the train up sixty five million dollars. Now, I would never, and our city could never have afforded to do that from ratepayer money from one hundred and seventy thousand people. But to get central government support for that out of a budget that central government had, we grabbed it with both hands. If we hadn't taken that money for that train to Auckland, that money would have probably could gone, gone elsewhere. Elsewhere, and we we so we've taken that money and very proud of uh, Councillor Dave McPherson for what he's done on this for Regional Council for the work they've done, um, but and also particularly um, Minister Twyford, who's um, works very closely with Hamilton City Council on on different projects that we're working on. It's I've talked about this before with some uh, other guests on the podcast, but I mean I like the idea of the train but I'm still cautious as to, well, at least initially, I, because I don't feel it benefits Hamilton or Auckland, it kind of benefits the towns. Would you agree with that? Or Well, no, look, it's not stopping at many towns. Um, it's, well, it's, it's just near Awahia and Huntley, isn't it? Yeah, it starts at Frankton. Um, we're setting up a se- second station with a park and ride in behind the base with a bridge going over into the base with parking there and with a bus stop there so people can come in by bus to catch a train or they can um, drive their car and drive, park it at the park and ride and catch a train to Auckland. There'll be two services each morning, and there'll be two services coming back each night. Uh, so it's not a, a, a huge service. It's um, The trains have been fitted out to a very high level. We've got uh, three locomotives been fully reconditioned, so we've got a spare locomotive if we have breakdown. We've also got spare carriages. Um, the carriages have been fully fitted out where you can put your bike or your bag in the same carriage you're sitting in and keep an eye on it. You're going to have a Wi-Fi service. You're going to have a table where you can work on your computer on the way up and the way down or read or do whatever other office work you need to do. There'll be a coffee muffin service and there'll be a bar service. So we're trying to make it comfortable for people. Yes, it is going to take a long time. It's going to take two hours. Yes, it's only going from Hamilton to Pukekohe. At Pukekohe, you'll have to change and get onto the network to get into Auckland, but those trains leave uh, for central Auckland and into Auckland about every f- f- 15 minutes. So we know that it does take a long time, but we also know that a lot of people are on their laptops and doing paperwork for around about a half of their day every day. So what a way to go. You, you get on a train, you go up to Auckland, you have your breakfast on the way up, you do your work, you prepare for your meeting, you go to your meeting and you come back again and again you've got time to, to catch up on your work. So, so you're, you'll have to make sure then that the Wi-Fi is very stable. Yes, and that will be a challenge um, with, a, with a moving train. This is expected to um, open in a year's time, so yeah. it's, it's not a far far away. Just Just what people need to be aware of is this is a start not the end yeah that's right you can't uh, yes it's being pulled by a dirty old diesel it will need to be electrified yes the lines will need to be made faster with time it may be that this just becomes the bread run like the milk run train and eventually a fast train gets put in yes that will cost billions of dollars and um, but if we've got a government who's prepared to think and talk and start working towards these kind of um, benefits for Hamilton it will be hugely beneficial to Hamilton in the long run um, with this type of improved service with time. But you've got we've got to start somewhere, and we're hugely grateful to this government for putting up the $65 million to enable this to happen. 
in terms of other projects that are happening within the city, what's happening with the Waikato Regional Theatre? Because I remember reading somewhere that it was supposed to start being constructed in April. Uh, look, it's <coughs> we've um, there's about fifty million dollars worth of um, pledges towards the theatre already. Uh, we're waiting for the government, who we're uh, asking for them to put fifteen million dollars in. That could be announced any day uh, through the Shane Jones Fund, and um, we believe that this would have huge benefits for our region. It is a regional theatre, and I'm um, very um, quite sure that um, that money will come through. And, and once all the money has been locked down, then the theatre will start. But it will be we don't want to start until that last $15 million, $16 million from the central government does come through. Do you have any idea of around about what? Uh, any day. And things have moved forward to a point where um, we're not sitting around waiting. We're still, there's a lot of planning, a lot of uh, engineers' reports, a lot that's going on while we wait for that money. Okay. And what about, uh, because there's a, I saw a ferry bank, is it? Ferry bank and the river bank plan? Because that was the 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 concept for it. Wasn't it done in 2016? Well, what I'd like to see is uh, all the way, we put a new park in uh, opposite the end of Collingwood Street, uh, which is a beautiful park that cascades down onto the river where you can sit there, um, views up and down the river. There's no nothing blocking your view. Uh, there's um, seats there where you can sit. There's a place for concerts, and the moon comes up over that river. It looks absolutely stunning. You've got Duck Island ice cream right there next door. We can buy yeah, an ice cream. Yeah, yeah, that looks great. Yeah. Go and sit down there and eat it. Well, my vision is to see from there all the way down to the new theatre, that whole city block, that the council buys that and develops that as a park and um, opens that up to the city, and that will connect then the commerce that happens in our city with the river. Um, I, I see um, there are a couple of protected buildings in there. We'll save those facades and um, just put a fantastic park in behind there. So the council has bought uh, the next four buildings next to the park that's there so that we're in control of those buildings. And there's uh, another lot of buildings between those and the theatre that we still need to buy that aren't for sale yet. So once we get... Um, you know, the first step is getting those buildings and putting ourselves in control. Right. And, um, but I see it as a, a huge open space through that whole area that disconnects our city with the river. I see the other side of Victoria Street where all the facades down that area are protected. And I see eventually in time those buildings being demolished and high-rise um, apartments being put in behind those with um, retail and cafes and things on the ground floor. They're north-facing, the wind's behind them and uh, cascading out over Victoria Street, over the park and to the river. So would you try and start that or in a similar time frame with the Waikato Regional Theatre? Because I'm, it would incorporate it somewhat, wouldn't it? Uh, no, I think the theatre will go ahead ahead of that. Um, like I say, we, last year we put up the uh, $4 million to buy the lot of buildings that we've bought. That's, we've got those now, we've got them locked down. Uh, it's a matter of waiting for the other buildings to become available buying those as they come up. We don't want to force anyone to sell. We want people who own those buildings to stay in those buildings for as long as they want. When they're finished with those buildings, we'd like them to offer them to the city. We're not asking to give them to the city or to give them at a discount price. We're prepared to pay. You know, at the time, we'll have to test council, but it, it, um, I would like to see us buy them, pay retail or a roundabout retail for them. Couldn't you... I mean, I'm not sure if this is... Uh, you'd be able to... 
confirm this for me, but isn't there something in the Public Works Act about... Uh, Compulsory acquisition, yeah, yeah there is, yeah. but I'm not prepared to go there. That's not what this is about. This is working with the people, not working against the people. Okay. This, this leads into uh, the next question in regards to rates rise, which is obviously something that you never you never hear anyone say yay raising my rates so what what was the reason for uh raising uh the rates what was it to 9.7% and then uh yep. for the remaining 9 years is it 2.1 uh, 3.8 per year 3.8 so basically when i came in we had a city where we had the founders theater the reason we need a new theater is because the founders theater um needs 20 million dollars plus spent on it to bring it uh, up to um a standard that it could be used again and, and you didn't want to do that well Councils put up $25 million towards the new theatre and um, with the philanthropic money that's coming in for that and the central government money that's coming in, we're getting a brand new theatre. So it's a matter of what would you rather have, a 1961 Holden, well we probably all would, but what's fit for purpose in a 1961 Holden is a hobby car, it's not fit for purpose, or would you rather have a um, brand new HSV Commodore? Um, and okay, or probably a better example would be a Q7 Audi, um, something that's fit for purpose for a modern world we live in. And the Founders Theatre, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on it to bring it back to its 1960s um, glory, it's going to be a building that's fit for 1960s. Right. So, so what, what's what's going to happen to that? We don't know yet. So we're not prepared to um, demolish it or do anything with it until the new theatre has at least got all the money locked down and, and started. And at that stage, we'll have to make the decision of whether it gets demolished, whether we save it as a town hall, just what we do with it. Okay. Uh, but back to the, the, the rates increase. So when uh, when I took over, we had five new councillors and a new mayor, and we had uh, we had a, a founders theatre that was closed because it hadn't had money spent on it and it had been run down. We had footpaths that the budget on footpaths had been... Um, hugely wound back so we had footpaths that uh, routes were pushing footpaths up we had um, edges on footpaths we had um, people falling over and breaking bones because the footpaths didn't have the budget to look after them Waterworld hadn't had money spent on it for years and it was um, we've since um, the rates increased we've spent the 11 million dollars we had to to bring Waterworld up to fit for purpose the water in Waterworld and the pools was taking four hours for the water to circulate in and filtrate it should be done best practices half an hour. We've got it up to half an hour now. So you can imagine the, the diseases and the bugs that could have been in those pools. We don't know whether they were. I mean, we test regularly, but it's still not good when it takes four hours for the water to go through a filtration system when you've got a pool full of people. So why wasn't that previously uh, dealt with before you even got into? Because when you're in a mayor, it's very easy to hold rates down by not spending to look after what you've got. <clears throat> and... That's what I believe was happening. We weren't. We were paying down debt. We we're patting ourselves on the back. We we're saying everything was all right, while we were paying debt down out of out of a money that um, could have been used and should have been used to look after what we had. And I believe by looking after what we've got is a responsible thing to do. Otherwise, all you're doing is pushing it out to a future generation. And I don't want my children and my grandchildren paying for the things I've enjoyed now, but haven't looked after, haven't kept up to a standard that they should have been kept up to, and letting the city run down. So we all want our amenities, but we've got a rate to a level where we can afford to look after what we've got. 
and I don't believe that we were doing that, and we are now. So um, that's why the increase. It wasn't easy. I didn't go out and push for an increase because I wanted an increase, but we're building a city here, and we've got amenities we've got to look after. We've got to be responsible. Hamilton's rates, we're still raising in the bottom half of all rates for all metropolitan cities in New Zealand. Really? So we're not overrating by what we're doing. Okay. Uh, I'd imagine, though, the rebuttal or the argument would be, uh, because the Claudelin's event centre, I've, I've heard that that's losing a lot of money per year. Is there a particular reason why you won't sell that if it's not, if it's not an asset? Well, firstly, we can't sell it because it's um, the titles aren't clear and there's other people who have rights to use it and it's written into the contract. And oh, okay. um, so it's not as straightforward as selling it. But there's things, the reason, one of the reasons council's there is to, yes, it's to look after rubbish rates, water, sewerage. Uh, but another reason that council's there is to do things for people that normally business can't do. So parks... Why would you set up a park that costs millions and millions of dollars that doesn't ever give a return? You do it because you want your people to have good quality of life. Theatres, buses, the different things that we do are things that don't make economic sense in some cases, but they're things that we do. We do have people in our society. Which firstly, we want to have a city that we're proud of. Secondly, we have vulnerable people in our city. And... Sometimes we do things to look after the vulnerable. That's a part of how we are. It's a part of the de democratic structure that we work under. We, um, I might pay 46 cents in a dollar in tax, but my son, who's just left school, might pay 26 cents in a dollar tax. Now, is that fair? On the surface, it doesn't seem like it's fair. But it's set up like that because I'm earning a lot more than my son. So they're taking from me to help pay for the others. And otherwise we'd have a flat tax rate. And it's the same with, with rates. It's the same with the way that we spend their money. Yes, you might be a family that has uh, two cars and you don't need to use the buses, but there's other families in suburbs in Hamilton who can't afford one car. And the way they get around is buses. And buses, I believe, are a good thing on multiple levels. They're good for the environment. We need to get people using the buses, and buses are subsidised by central government. They pay a third. The people who use the buses pay a third, and the other third comes from the ratepayer. But if we can fill our buses up and get and incentivise people to use our buses, which are driving around empty at the moment, why wouldn't you? So why do you think that they are empty? Well, what we've done right now is we've taken off the charges for buses on Saturdays, Sundays, and public holidays for anyone who's 18 or under. And what we want to do is we want to encourage... Those buses are driving around empty. We want to encourage them to get filled up. We want to retrain our kids and have our kids trained so that their first port of call is getting on the bus, not getting in the car. Right. Okay, and we we've got... There was four pillars traditionally for central government. There was education, there was law and order, there was health, and there was the and there was the books looking after our finances. But there's now a fifth pillar, and that's looking after our environment. Yeah. 
and that's come up very fast. And we've got a lot of young people who feel very strongly about it, and we need to be listening to what's emerging. And part of that is public transport. It's not getting in a car, but getting on the bus and filling the buses up yeah, and getting less clutter off the roads. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to... Firstly, the person who has to use their car, if there's more people on the bus, they must feel, they must they should feel good about it because there'll be a lot less traffic on the road because there'll be a lot of people on the buses. Um, it, so it takes the clutter off the road, which means people who need to use cars can get through. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to cost a whole lot more because there's a lot less vehicles on the road. It means the roads don't get cut up. It means we don't have to improve our roads. We don't have to make our roads wider, which means we save money there, which then... And the reason we're saving the money is we don't need to go there because of the buses. So it's very easy for us in Hamilton to jump to the conclusion that because the buses are driving around empty, they shouldn't be there. The The way that I see it is they're there for the vulnerable, but they should be there for all of us. And we should be all thinking much more about buses and about using buses and filling the buses up on multi, for multiple areas, which I've just talked about, including the environment. I understand that. I mean, I'm from Auckland, so I see the dilemma in buses because uh, if it if it takes too long to get somewhere, let's let's use peak hour for example, right? The traffic gets reasonably bad here during peak hour, but I don't see that many bus lanes around the city. In order, for, so if someone's driving versus a bus, it's going to take a longer duration on a bus as opposed to a car, which I think some people don't like particularly if they're they're very anal about time um is there anything in place to i mean because you're probably limited in terms of the roading that's already there in terms of making more bus lanes available so people can get to the city easier yeah but what comes first filling the buses up and making buses extending out the free bus service even further than what we have to encourage more and more people to use buses so how far does it go how far will this, the bus extend out? Is this out to Morinsville? And... No, it's, this is in Hamilton City. Just within Hamilton because City. Because that's where our rate space is. Okay, So we can't um, subsidise people to be going outside of the city. Yeah, or... that's fair enough. Um, so um, the question really is what comes first, putting bus lanes in or getting people on the buses? Mm -hmm. The way I feel is make buses, make the bus service regular, make bus the bus service cheap or free. And if you have a free service and you've got people on the buses, you're going to then have a lot less cars on the road. You're going to declutter the roads, but you're also then going to set yourselves up where you can put bus lanes in. When you put bus lanes in, you lose parking on the sides of the road. And if you don't, if you don't, if you do it any other way, it's hugely expensive. But to take away that parking, you need to have incentivised people to go on the buses in the first place. I believe I get a lot of pushback on the environment issue, and I believe. I don't believe in signing documents and bits of paper that are basically worthless and don't say anything. Well, they say, basically, let's sort out the environment, but it's easy to sign a bit of paper to get the greenies off your back and then you don't do anything about it. I'd rather be a mayor who doesn't sign a bit of paper and actually does constructive things to help the environment. And that's what this council's doing. We're starting it with the buses in a small way, making it free in the weekend, but can it be extended out to make buses free for everybody all the time? I believe it can, and I believe that if we do that, it's not going to cost the ratepayer a lot more for the reasons I've already said, and I believe at that stage, then you'll start looking at your bus lanes and prioritising buses so that when the person's there in their car, 
and to see the bus line bus come through in a bus line on the inside like we do at the moment in Auckland on the Auckland motorway system and on the North Shore where the buses come through and get into town yeah. in 15 minutes and if you're in your car it takes you an hour and 15 minutes yeah so um and and then that incentivize people more and more to leave the car at home and use public transport um and uh, you know, this feeds into the, the environment argument as well so there's a whole lot of reasons here this is um a difficult area it's an area that i've spent a lot of time thinking about and i believe i can't i can't understand why buses wouldn't be free for all and you make them free for all then more and more people are going to use them then the um, frequency of the services will increase. We have to spend less on our roads. We're helping the environment, and but we still allow. This isn't about shutting people down from using their car. This will only help those who want to continue to use their car because there'll be a lot less people on the roads. Would there? Would you ever incorporate, say, a ferry on the river? Uh, look, it's a very expensive form of transport. Um, one day, I believe there will be water ferries on the river. But remember, we are a population of 170,000 people. No, we're not, um, say, Chengdu, our sister city in uh, China, 16 million people in Chengdu. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, in regards to Peacock, uh, because you've been given a 10-year interest-free loan? Yeah, so we're very proud of that. We've... Um, this council uh, went to central government, talked with ministers, built relationships with uh, firstly the national government, and then uh, they agreed and they didn't sign off. And then Labor got in and uh, they saw the vision and they honoured the agreement. So it's $180 million of interest-free money for 10 years. That has a value of around about $70 million in uh, interest that we don't have to pay. As well as that, they put $110 million into roading subsidies which we wouldn't have got had we done the subdivision in another part of town. And as well as that, there was another $18 million for a flyover to get in there over Cobbin Drive. And um, so if you add all of those up, plus the train to Auckland, which was another $75 million, this council has got around about quarter of a billion dollars of central government funding that we don't have to pay back. Now, we do have to pay back. Well, you do have to pay back. We, no, the $180 million is a benefit we don't have to pay back. So we have to pay back the hundred. There's two two hundred eighty million dollars here. There's okay. hundred eighty million dollars of cash that we've got. We don't have to pay that. We have to pay back over ten years. Okay. But the benefit from that's the seventy thousand, plus on top of that, the hundred and ten thousand dollars in roading subsidies that the government's given us. We don't have to pay back. Plus on top of that, the eighteen million dollars for the flyover over Common Drive. Plus on top of that, the sixty-five million dollars they've given us to set the train up to Auckland. So that means for the Hamilton Kirikiridoa, there's been quarter of a billion dollars of benefit to the city we don't have to pay back. And that's never happened in the history of the city that we're aware of before. And it all comes from a relationship. And if there's anybody here who's listening, who's either interested in business for not-for-profit or family situations or an employee, relationship is highly, highly valued. I believe that relationship is how trade is done. Now, yes, your product has to be good, but that's only half of it. The other half comes from people liking who you are, liking your values, buying into into your value systems, and then supporting you. And so relationships are very highly ranked in, in, in how I operate. 
Now, with hand-in-hand with relationship is a sister to relationship, and she's called trust. And it doesn't matter how strong your relationship is, if you break the trust, it's all over. So the two go hand-in-hand. So um, I and I just um, am so proud of this council for what we've done with central government and the benefit that central government has seen in the huge um, what Hamilton Kirikiriroa and this region can do for this part of New Zealand and for the overall New Zealand economy. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, in regards to Peacock, because I see in Rotatuna and Flagstaff, there's already quite a quite a bit of traffic congestion in the morning mostly because i think there's just two lane a lot of two lane roads such as thomas road uh is it thomas road and resolution drive is there anything in place within peacock to avoid that happening there eventually over time look peacock will be a fully planned um subdivision Uh, there'll be two lanes in each direction right from the start There'll be, um, we'll be allowing for bus lanes, we'll be allowing for three metre wide cycle and footpaths and scooters. So it's um, being planned in a way that we believe. And, and the width of the road doesn't have any barriers on it so that as things change and needs change, we can move lanes around. So it may be that we have one lane out in each direction and a bus lane out in each direction to start right. with. It may be, okay. but we can change it because we have that flexibility because there'll be no, as part of the engineering of the bridge, there'll be no barriers that would stop us doing what we want in the future. Okay. Was that, I mean, it's probably before your time, but why why wasn't Rotatuna and Flagstaff designed that way? Always comes down to budgets. It's money, how much money there is. It's hugely expensive to open up a new growth cell. We couldn't have done it without the central government money. Right. We're very proud of the relationship we had to get that money, and that's allowed us to open up. Peacock has been promised to our city for 30 years. It's been t- talked about for over 30 years, and this council has opened up Peacock. It's a huge job. It's going to be five years before the bridge opens and before the subdivision's on the other side, which will be probably ready to go at the same time, connect, can connect through, because the surge has to get out of that area and it has to come across the bridge under the bridge to get through um, to Pukiri to where we treat our surge. But um, so it's hugely expensive to open up a new growth cell like that. And when when's this uh, start, when will houses start being developed there? In, uh, well, in f- Peacock? Five years, the bridge will be open and the first subdivisions will be ready to for people to move into. So the two will go hand in hand. Okay. Because um, the developers will want to get their first thousand lot subdivision away, which they're already planning and already working on, um, not on the ground, but pl- working on the planning side of it. We're working on the planning on the engineering and the bridge and that side of it. Um, we've got our money all lined up, so we're ready to go. That won't trip us up. So everything's ready to go. It's um, just a matter of getting the bridge across while they can start their subdivisions ahead of time. So when the bridge is finished, people can move into their houses. I've got an interesting question for you because this is quite this is quite recent, but I'm not sure if you know. But so Amazon just recently confirmed that they're going to be shooting the Lord of the Rings television series here for 1.5 billion. I'm not sure if you know that or not. Right. Uh, and they're building studios in Auckland and Queenstown. Is there any way Hamilton might be able to capitalise on that, considering that Matter Matter is 40 minutes from here? Look, I. I believe this is probably high-level talks here with government because there were tax issues and tax subsidies and all sorts of things here, I would have thought. So Amazon are actually making the film. 
Well, it's not a film, it's a television series, but it's the, the most expensive television yeah. series of all time yeah. in terms of how much they're spending on it. So um, I, I don't know, but I imagine there'll be central government subsidies and things involved. I, I'm not sure. But um, no, we haven't talked to Amazon directly. Yeah. Um, well, there was, I did read in stuff, I think a year or two ago about yourself and Angela talking. This is this is a different part of Amazon, but wanting Amazon's, if they were to set up here in New Zealand, that you wanted to pitch them putting their factory here in Hamilton. Was that right? Well, I think for the size of what Amazon would want, I doubt we'd have the land available because of our constrained boundaries in the first place. Right. So, um, but no, we haven't been approached by Amazon. And um, yes, a year ago, uh, efforts may have been made to contact them, but there has been no direct communication with the board of Amazon or the CEO of Amazon and okay. on this matter. And in regards to tourism, uh, because currently Hamilton's not really seen as a tourist destination, is it? It's it's mainly for the Hamilton Gardens, and people either venture to the Waitamo Caves or they venture to Hobbiton. Uh, is there anything, do you think, well, is there anything in the future that could probably bring more tourists to the city? Because it seems to be bypassed a lot. Yes, it is. I mean, we're an inland city. Um, Hamilton Gardens are fantastic. A lot of people come here for those. And if anyone's listening who hasn't been to Hamilton Gardens, especially the inner theme gardens, you must go. They were voted one of the best gardens in the world a couple of years ago. Yep, and they, they really are, are fantastic. And we're spending a lot more money on those, making them even better. But um, Hamilton is an inland city and it isn't a tourist destination. And I think we just need to get a hedge around that and understand that. But it could be used as a tourist hub. And I believe um, um, because from here, and we have had people from overseas who have stayed with us and it's worked really well, a day trip to Rotorua, day trip to Taupo, day trip to Watamu Caves, a day trip to Hobbiton and then on to Tauranga, a day trip up the Coromandel, up Cathedral Cove, do the train trip, um, a day trip up to Auckland uh, and then fly out of here down to Queenstown and or Christchurch and, and well, probably Queenstown's the better choice and, and get a feel for the South Island. Uh, um, a couple of ideas. Um, we uh, looked at whether a bungee platform yes, could be set off, off the that. new bridge. Yep. Um, we don't think the bridge is high enough for that. Uh, another thought that I've had and something I'm very keen of is uh, Waifakariki, where we have the um, uh, planting going on around the lake. Uh, I think that that area could be um, pest-proof fenced and we could put in a, a Kiwi breeding center in there. And I oh, believe yeah. if we did that in a really good way, in a really high level way, releasing those Kiwis into Waifakariki and then from there um, up into some of the mountains in the area around the Waikato where we know that there's no pests that are going to kill the Kiwi, um, that would, um, I believe that that would bring every busload of tourists and every tourist who came into Auckland would come straight to Hamilton to look at those Kiwi if we did it properly and did it well. As well as that, it would be educational for our kids. They could You could chip the Kiwi, they could trace them, follow them on their laptops. As uh, well as that, um, um, we could use it for uh, hospitalising and treating sick New Zealand natives as well. There's no secret about it. I'm not a fan of the zoo. I, I um, Really? Why not? Uh, I believe keeping large exotic animals in small cages is um, cruel and not right. And uh, I believe uh, when I was a child, the rodeo was accepted. It's not anymore. When I was a child, marine parks, 
uh, where we had dolphins and things as we had at uh, Mount Maunganui were accepted there, frowned upon now. Um, we know the Napier one got shut down. Um, people have a lot more uh, feelings now for animal and an- animal, and a lot more awareness for animal welfare. And um, I'm not a fan of keeping animals that aren't native to New Zealand in small caves for us, in small cages for us to come along and um, try and make the tap on the window to try and make the tiger roar. And uh, I, I just don't believe that that is where we should be. But uh, I, I understand that. I'm, I'm not trying to shut down the zoo budget. I'm not trying to shut down uh, layoff staff. Um, what I'm saying is we need to recalibrate and look at our natives and what we can do there with Waifakariki, which is right next to the zoo, and, and bring that online as our, as our tourist destination. I don't believe tourists are going to get off the bus, get off the plane in Auckland and come to Hamilton and see Hamilton Zoo. No, I think it's something they, they do while they're already here. Yeah, they, but they would come down. Well, I don't believe they come to the zoo at all. We've got zoos all over the world that have all the same animals in them. Um, yes, there's the argument of conservation of what if the tigers in Africa um, or Somalia or where, wherever get some disease and all die out. And we've got some here, ring fence, that don't get the disease, so the breed lives on. Well, that um, sounds lovely, but these animals can never be released back into the wild. They can never survive if they were released into the wild. That is true. Um, I just wonder what it's all about. And um, But anyway, that's not something I push too hard. It's just a personal belief. Okay. So we've talked about things around the city and uh, the council, but what is it... So when you're not at work, what, what does the mayor like to do in his spare time? Look, my job starts, my first appointment start at quarter to seven in the morning. Um, if I, a late day for me is eight o'clock. Um, for really? So you seven, so, seven in the morning to eight at night, is that? Uh, no, no, no. Hang on. My first appointments, I, I, I hold back appointments in the morning at uh, quarter to seven for early appointments if somebody needs to see me urgently. Most of my appointments start at eight o'clock. Uh, normally finish at night, an early night for me, six o'clock. I ring up my wife and make a date for dinner because we don't see each other very often. And um, uh, um, I don't, I'm often home at 11 o'clock at night after social events. So part of the job is leadership and setting policies and direction for the city. The other part of the city, part of the job is kissing babies and cutting ribbons, you know, going to functions, having meals, making speeches, and that goes into the evening. That sounds so, draining. So, yeah, and Saturday, and um, I try not to work on Sunday, but sometimes on Sunday there's also um, social events that I really need to be at to represent the city. So um, it is um, it is a very big job. It's probably um, probably double the hours of a 40-hour week. It's um, Were you aware of that before you so, became mayor? Well, I've always poured myself fully into everything I've done, and um, whatever I've done, I've really enjoyed. I love this job as well, and um, I've poured myself fully into what I'm doing. I'm not here for a long time, and this is a three-year term. I'm standing again for another three years, but I want to achieve a lot for our city, and I believe that this council and this term in the last three years has achieved more for our city than what we've seen in previous councils for a long, long time. And I'm very proud of what this council has achieved, and um, sometimes... When you're in a position of leadership, you step up and you part of that is to put the hours in. So I'm, um, I, I enjoy it. You're a busy boy. I, I love what I do, but I don't have time for other things. When I do get time out, I want to spend that with my family. Fair enough. Um, my favourite thing in life is um, friends, food, 
and um, just good company with fine food. And you know that fine fine food doesn't mean expensive. It, it can be a pizza, but sitting around, giving time to each other with people you want to be with, while you're enjoying food, to me is one of my favourite pastimes. Well, that's good. Any favourite places you like to go if you're going to eat out? Generally, um, generally I don't eat out because I'm out eating out all the time um, <laughs> with, at, at events. So um, when I get time out, I prefer not to eat out. Um, Thai Classic Cuisine in Victoria Street next to uh, Les Mills. I believe they have the best Thai takeaway in Hamilton. It's absolutely stunning. I have tried it. Yes, it's um, very, very good. I'm a house Pizza fan. I love um, house Pizzas. Um, they're just they have vegan options, they have vegetarian options, they had vegan options before anyone else had vegan options. Um, Are you a vegetarian? So, yeah, I, I've traditionally been a vegan. Um, I find it too hard in this job. I don't want to put people out. It's too difficult. So I prefer to eat like a vegan, um, but I will eat like a vegetarian if I have to. Because my partner is vegetarian and she gets a bit frustrated with uh, going out and trying to find places that have a lot of vegetarian options. Oh, will try the... Um, Try Thai classic cuisine. They have their jungle curry. It's um, it's a vegan option. It's very very spicy, but it's lovely. But um, there are a lot of ethnic foods that are, you know, a lot of the Indian foods are vegetarian. Yeah. Um, Subway is on on the run. They have a lot of vegetarian options. Um, like I say, your pizza places now have vegetarian options and vegetarian choices and and vegan options. So um, they are out there if you know where to go and what to do. Um, um, there's a Restaurants in town, um, yeah, there are restaurants in town for fine dining that cater to vegans and vegetarians as well. I think she, I think she just gets a bit frustrated because, besides from Thai and uh, Indian, is uh, other restaurants when there is vegetarian or vegan options, there tend to be two or three options. And my partner's Indian, and so I've been to India, and when you go there and you look at the options, there's yeah, fifty percent of the menu. Yeah, yeah pages yeah. and pages. Yeah, look, I, I um, I'm not a, I don't eat the way I eat to be make it hard for people. So I'm very much if I've served a plate of um, traditional plate, say veggies and potatoes, and there's some meat on the plate, I'll just push the meat aside. Won't make a big statement out of it and eat the veggies. And I'm not going to not eat the veggies because the meat's been touching the veggies. Or because a bit of gravy gets under the meat, I'm not going to be that fussy because in my position in leadership, um, I don't want, I'm not doing it to make a statement and I don't want the conversation around the table to be about what you can and can't eat and the reasons why you can and can't eat that food. I um, I just want to fit in and, and not uh, make it awkward or difficult for people. People put a lot of time and energy into thinking about food and into serving, and they're very proud of what they do. And I don't want to take away from them and what they're doing and how they do it and how they present the food and what they're putting out. So I, I don't... Um, and, and I also just don't like it when you're sitting around arguing about what type of diet's the best type of diet. I, I feel these are personal things and um, I, I don't, agree. don't I push agree. them onto other people. Yep, I agree. I agree. Have you always been a vegetarian though? Or? No, about um, 15 years I've um, tried to eat vegan as much as I can. Do you feel healthier? Uh, I believe it's better for my body and that's why I eat like that. But once again, I believe it's personal choice. Yeah, and yeah, I would yeah. never Look, I'm the only one in my family who doesn't eat meat. I cook the barbecues, I cook the meat, and I'm proud of how the, how I cook the meat, and I always ask how it is, and I always look for how people are the meat, and I try and cook the meat as tender as I can. 
and I would never let my personal belief come into other people's um, uh, way of eating. I mean, let's face it, there's vitamin B12 that you can only get from red meat and or mainly only get from red meat. And if you're a vegan, um, you really should be taking B12 supplements um, so that your body isn't eating its own marrow to get the B12. Yeah. And so um, I'm not saying that being a vegan or a vegetarian is what how we should be 100% because... Um, I think it's different person to person and you, you have know, to feel out your yeah. own body and see what works and what doesn't and what your body rejects and yeah. what it accepts. But if anybody was going to be a vegan, I'd strongly encourage them to get regular testing for B12 and make sure you have got the right amount in your body and if not, don't be sure to take the supplements yeah. to top that up because um, it's not good for your body um, to be longing and searching and finding that B12 from within itself. Yeah. So... Are you... So I'm saying do it responsibly. Yeah. If you're going to do it. Of course, of course. Are you concerned by any of your competition in terms of people who are running for mayor as well? Or are you... You're not worried? Look, I'm not worried at all. I, I um, When I went for this job, I wasn't worried when... We had three recounts and I won by six votes um, and it took weeks and weeks to sort out whether I got the job or not. I wasn't worried. I wasn't even concerned at that stage and I'm not worried now. I'm a businessman. I'm big on family. I have a faith and I, um, this is being the mayor is one part of who I am. Right. And uh, I don't need this job. I don't have to have this job and I make my decisions based on what I believe is best, not on what I think the people want to hear. And um, if I... I'm here because the people want me here. I'm not here because of me. I'm here because of you, the listeners who voted for me. And I'm um, I'm here for the people as long as the people want me here. So uh, no, I don't um, have to have, don't have to have this job. Well, that's that's good. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> I, but I don't get me wrong. I do love this job. It's a very privileged place where I am. Yeah, and I really do try not to take advantage of the privilege and um, I do enjoy what I do. Well, part of the reason why I like doing these podcasts face-to-face is so I can kind of get to know the person while I'm talking to them because people can say anything about political figures. I don't like this person. I don't like them because of this and that, but they have no emotional attachment. They've never talked to you probably for a long duration of time. That's why I like to do these sort of conversations and I feel like I know you a lot better already. Um there was a couple of questions in regards to the election turnout last time. It was a pretty small percentage. Um, what do you think the problem is with voter turnout in terms of people coming to vote and specifically young people? Look, I don't think people are interested in the council. I don't think people care who their mayor is and I don't care. think people particularly care who the councillors are. In fact, I don't think people even know who the councillors are. They probably know who the mayor is, but they couldn't name the councillors. They certainly couldn't name more than three. Yeah, well... Uh, anyone who, yeah. out there, I'd challenge you who's listening uh, to, to name more than three councillors. Um, it's just straight off if you were asked or if you asked any of your friends. But I believe what the people of the city want is they want... They don't want to hear about bickering and, and fighting. They want the councillors that they're put in and they earn good money. They're on $70,000 a year each. The mayor's on $160,000 a year. That's and good money. They um, want those people who they voted for, who they put in place to run the city, not argue amongst themselves, not bicker, and unite and move the city forward. And I think the people of the city are happiest 
when they're not hearing anything about what's happening in council. Because when they're not yes. hearing what's happening in council, things are running smoothly and things are running well. And that's what the people want. And so because this, um, the council doesn't rate highly in people because they just want us to get on with the job, then it's not a high importance for them to vote either. And it's difficult when you get your voting papers to see a whole list of, say, eight mayors, eight people who want the job as a mayor, and 50 people who are standing for 13 jobs to go down and choose who's who and who to, who to vote for. And what I'd encourage people to do is when you're voting, vote for the people, not on name recognition, but do a bit of research and vote for the people that you know and the people that you like. Make appointments to see the people, talk to the people, research the background of the people, and then vote accordingly. And if you don't vote for 13 people, a mayor and... Well, in your case, a mayor and six people in each ward, so six people in your ward. If you can't find six people to vote for, don't vote for six people. Just vote for the, there might be three that you're comfortable with. Um, but don't vote for the sake of voting. Vote. That's what happened with Brexit. Mm. <laughs> um, but would would it ever go digital? Would you ever be able to vote digitally, rather through a computer or through an app? Well, from what I can see um, with... Um, uh, you mean on online voting? Yeah, well, I had a guy who wants me to go on his radio show to talk about this stuff, and he mm. believes that the council doesn't want young people to vote because, I don't know, that's just some, I think, some conspiracy or something. He's heard it from somewhere. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know. I don't believe that's true. Well, the research <laughs> shows that when you go online, less people vote than they vote by postal. But the other thing that's... Really? Yeah. And the other thing that underlines that is um, underlays that is the, um, or the second reason is the chance of ma manipulation through online voting hugely escalates. Well, uh, there's more of a chance of hacking, I suppose. Yes, and yeah. there are international countries who do this. There's actual governments who do it. So what have 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 actually. Well, no, they are active in the world of hacking and manipulating outcomes. Oh, right, okay. And um, I, I think it's far too dangerous to go there. And this isn't about stopping young people from voting. Young people get every opportunity like everyone else to vote. The papers come, they sit in their bedroom, sit on the kitchen table for three weeks. All they have to do is tick the boxes, put it in the envelope and put it back in the mailbox. It's not hard. And um, But online voting does have risks. We We looked at it very seriously. But due to the risks involved, our council decided not to go with it. And it had nothing to do with, um, it was all based around risk. And it wasn't about risk of different people coming in and voting. It was about the risks of getting involved in online voting were just too high. So I don't believe there's any council in New Zealand that's doing online voting this time around. Mm. But do you, I mean, do you have any... Uh, bits of advice to how you think you could get more young people in uh, interested in um, voting. I, I mean, believe... you, you have you, you have kids, so well, I think um, what probably more up with the play than some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think what happened in the nineteen sixties with the Jesus movement, with the hippie movement, and with the um, I think a lot of that was activated through awareness of what governments were doing, uh, particularly in the Vietnam War. 
and it activated a whole generation of people to become aware politically of what was happening. Since that time, there really hasn't been a war of significance, and I believe that we've got complacent, and nobody's really worried too much about politics. But I believe what's mm. changing right now is the environment. And with we've got a whole group of young people coming through who are extremely concerned about our futures and about the environment. And I believe that they will become politically active. I believe they will take notice of what's going on with their politicians, and I believe they will begin to vote. And I believe that that's the change that's going to happen. It's, going to, it's not going to happen by what we do to encourage them to vote. It's going to happen because they are going to get interested in what's happening because they'll understand that politics have a huge effect on the environment and they're very concerned about the environment. It does involve a lot of research, though. I mean, I'm not really up with the play when it comes to politics, and I'm, and I probably know more than most. Um, so it's a it's a complex thing to try and convince young people into what what they even understand when they're voting. Don't uh, under, underestimate the power of um, information and the power of being able to share very quickly. I know, but on a young generation. But it can also be the information can also be incorrect as well. Yes, but I still trust that young people. I have a high level of trust in this generation that's coming through, um, that they will sort out wrong, right from wrong, and that they will, in all sorts of areas, not just voting, um, but in all sorts of areas, that they will make the right choices. Um, I believe that's a very aware generation, and I, I. um, yes, they are emotional and they are reactive and they want things very quickly, but I do believe that they have a very high level of justice in right and wrong and that they will come through and they will actually, their voice will be heard because they will rise up mm. and they will get involved and it will come from them, not from us. I hope you're right. I, I do. I do hope you're right. Uh, final, final question. If you could, if you could snap your fingers, what, how would Hamilton look like to you? If you could snap your fingers and have everything the way you would want it to, what would be, what would be, uh, the way the city looks? How would you want it to, to be in terms of, well, everything from infrastructure and, or I suppose, would you want it to be more? like a city like Auckland or uh, would would you want it to be more like a city overseas or just in terms of your the things that you you would like to see happen if you could make them happen overnight okay look I'm very very proud of the city and how it is and how it's developed um, if there's anything um, that I could do for the city I'd, I'd have free buses yep I'd have the central city park open right up so that we had some a waterfront in Hamilton where we connected the city to the river. I would have, um, um, but the big thing would be our boundaries hugely expanded so that we could plan our city for 100 years. And when we can plan our city, f- at the moment we're getting some perverse outcomes from some of the planning outcomes that we have, and the reason for that is because we haven't got the land so we're just trying to fill in any bits of land we have got. We're trying to use it for where the biggest demand is. I would like to see us where we knew how much land we had for 100 years, that that land was protected so it didn't start getting um, misused in the meantime. So it was clear farmland for when we do need it. And 
and then we could start planning Hamilton for 100 years and we could say, look, all this peat area through here, we're going to leave it for parks and reserves or for lifestyle blocks or for royal living, um, like Tamahiri, where people live on half an acre. And um, they can be serviced by their own septic tank because they're on a big section. And we don't have to worry about pipes in the ground where all the ground moves and, and, it, and it gets ruined. And then there's other areas here where it's good um, sand soil, which we can use for building. And there's other areas over here where we can put our industrial areas. So the biggest thing that I believe that can happen for Hamilton is that we plan our city for a hundred years, um, yeah. So another thing um, I just want to touch on, actually, yeah, okay. uh, that the we just all yours. that we just set up um, last week, which we've been working on for quite a long time, is a is a, um, a um, land trust where um, uh, we're setting up a not for profit separate council and. Um, where money will be put into it, where we'll buy surplus council land and other land, and that land will be subdivided up and be given to um, uh, be leased on peppercorn leases, so very low levels of lease to people like Habitats and other people who build houses where we can put people in the houses who are working, but they're paying, say, $500 a week in rent and they can never afford to buy their own home. So what we're doing was we're taking, trying to take the land out of the equation with an uh, a ongoing land trust so the person can stay in the property for the rest of their lives or until they buy a second property. They're not allowed to own more than one property, so it'll be the only property they can own. And then um, it comes back to the land trust at the end at the value of the improvements. So if they build a house on there, they spend 300000 on the house, the house will get valued when they're ready to sell it and we'll, the land trust will buy the house back at that value. So we, we've got that through now, through council, and we're starting to work on that. Now, there are land trusts in um, different places and parts of America where 8% of the land um, are owned by the Lands Trust. So what it would mean in Hamilton, instead of someone having to raise a $600,000 to get $600,000 to get to buy a house, if you take the land value out, which would be roughly $300,000, they'd only have to raise 300000 And that would mean the person who was working, the family that was working on one income, who um, could never afford to buy a house um, would then be able to raise the mortgage to buy the mortgage just to do the improvements on the property. So this is something quite um, I'm excited about. And this is a little bit about what I'm about. So you'll notice me talking about land trusts and free yeah, buses. Yeah, I'm, I'm noticing a theme so here. So I'm a, I'm a businessman, but I've got a social heart, social conscience, and I want to look after those in our city who work hard who try and get ahead, but they're just never going to get there like others of us who are in a more privileged position can. And those people equally need to be looked after. And they do work just as hard as the rest of us. They still go to work. They work 40, 50 hour a week, but they're only earning $20 an hour. And and those people are the ones that are essential. They drive our buses. Um, there's another tier of people who are our nurses, our doctors, and our cleaners and this these people now and, and not not our doctors sorry and nurses and our and our teachers some of those people are on one income for the household and yes they might be earning seventy thousand dollars a year but they might have they might be have um three dependents well ha we want those people to get into their own homes where they can be proud of what they've got and where the city makes it work for them so um um i i just believe a part of government is to look after those who are at the lower end and try and bring some equity 
um, don't worry, I'm not way over there on the left. I'm, what I'm saying is we do have a responsibility as leaders to look after everybody, not just the people like myself who's a businessman who's done very well and um, can look after myself. Thank you very much. I, I also believe we need to look after the whole of society. So there are some people out there who are really needy and we have a responsibility to them and that's where our parks come in. You know, those, those who are living in small apartments, they need the parks, they need the playgrounds, they need these other things. And um, going back to Claudelands, like we talked about before, where we go for our events, yes, it doesn't make financial sense, but it's about making the city a better place to live, a more balanced place to live, a place that we can all be proud to call Hamilton Kirikirido our home, our city. Is there, this just came to my head, uh, in terms of the homeless problem in the CBD, is there anything that can be done in regards to that? But we know there aren't a lot of homeless. We, we know that the number's not that small. Um, yes, this is a heart-wrenching subject, and there are some people who are tied up uh, with mental illness and then addictions as well, sometimes one, sometimes both, sometimes neither. But um, there are people out there who choose, there are a couple of people who choose to sleep on the street. There's normally um, less than probably maybe another 20 who may live on the streets who, uh, I mean, if you get thrown out of your home or you've got nowhere to live, you'll end up on the street until we can house you. But we work very closely with Wises Group and the People's Project and Garden Place. They work closely with all the different government agencies to bring people through, to give them a wraparound service, to get them into a home. Housing is important. We have to get people into housing. And we can't get people cleaned up and get people into housing or get people into, into jobs or just get people in balance if they don't have an address and a place for social services to go to to address it. So it is an issue. It is something that is heart-wrenching, but there are a lot of people out there on the street who are choosing to be on the street so they have a place to live but they go to this. They go onto the street for um, company. They go onto the street because their mates are on the street. They go into the street because that's what they know. So don't get mixed up. With, so there's two sides of it. Yeah, don't get mixed up that those who are genuinely homeless and those who are choosing to be on the streets. Um, I, I say that we shouldn't give money to beggars. I believe that a huge amount of the money that um, beggars are asking for goes into addictions. I agree. Um, they do get a benefit. Even if they don't have an address, they're still getting a benefit. And they um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't look after them, but if you feel strongly about it, get involved in a social agency that's helping these people. But just don't give them cash. Because when you give them cash, I believe this could often be used to feed their addictions. And that's what we don't want. And it encourages them to stay on the street. Is there uh, any, any plans in place to try and revitalize the CBD. This is obviously a bit before my time, but I was under the understanding uh, prior to the base uh, coming into fruition um, that the CBD was quite buzzing and alive and now all the retail, because it's at the base, everyone goes there. Is there any, I mean, what what's uh, your personal thoughts on how to bring more people back into the CBD? Yeah, look, it's... Um... 
we've got 800 staff from um, the hospital moving into the CBD, into the old farmer's building, which is around about to open any time. So okay. those offices have all decked out. And uh, next to that, where the old Ebbets, Ebbet Holden are now, that's being um, fitted out with offices and apartments. Union um, Square? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. And there's going to be possibly, I understand, up to 20,000 square metres of um, floor space in there. That's absolutely huge. Um, so there is thing there are things happening in the CBD. I believe the CBD is going quite well, but it will never be like it was. And that it, it it's a lot of business now is run through the computer through home based businesses. Yeah. A lot of um, um, the retail is now in the malls, but the CBD is a place where we come for entertainment, for um, and for food and for um, socialising. So um, I love the CBD. I love the strip shopping type of um, complex and feel there is to it. Uh, and well, this, the Wellington CBD and the Auckland CBD tend to be very much alive and buzzing. Mm. That's that's what I mean in terms of Hamilton. I mean mm. Hamilton's usually buzzing on Saturday, Friday and Saturday nights after eleven because they're all down. Hood Street, mm. uh, but then you go to the other side and it's just completely deserted. Yeah, remember it's a very big CBD, um, a huge CBD compared with other CBDs, but remember it's 1.5 million people live in Auckland. Yes, I do know okay, that. Yes, yeah. We are a metropolitan But, uh, but in town. terms of, because Wellington is a couple hundred thousand more, isn't it, than Hamilton? Wellington actually isn't that big. A lot of people live outside of the Wellington and come into Wellington for work. But, yeah, Wellington is a capital, and capital cities have a lot of privilege. You look at Canberra, you look at uh, New Delhi, you look at, um, you know, different, um, different capitals capitals. around the world. Um, they're almost a, I wouldn't call it a false economy, but um, they're <laughs> a capital economy, and um, they have a lot of um, Washington, D.C., a lot of... Um, privilege that other cities and states in their countries don't have. I remember you saying that you wanted the capital to move here at one point. Oh, I'd love the capital to move here. I mean, here or Nelson would be the other place uh, um, to be leaving it, and Wellington's ludicrous. It's um, unstable, and we all know it, and we've been taught that since we were little children, and um, it's not a matter of if, if the earthquake comes, it's when the earthquake comes. Yeah. And... Um, the loss of life, you know, we just don't want to think about it. Um, but I know, I understand that there are a lot of businesses now relocating and a lot of government departments even um, setting up second offices or relocating out of Wellington. And I think um, this is obviously this huge spend in infrastructure in Wellington as well. Well, that's, and that's, so well to move you, the move the capital mm. would be very, very costly, I think. And let's face it, we all love Wellington. It is our capital. It's beautiful um, the way the architecture on the hilly up on the mountains and up on the hills where you're building houses that you never build anywhere else in New Zealand I wouldn't have thought in crazy places and it's exciting and yeah. it's it's a beautiful harbour and um, you know the airport's there where you hub out of there into anywhere in New Zealand and other parts of the world and um, you know our museum's there and our parliament's there and um, we turn Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and all yeah, that's there. yeah. So you know, we we love the place, and yep. I think um, we all do. Uh, but it's just unstable, and long term, I believe it would be wise to move it to Hamilton. Of course, Hamilton can't get it all. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that. Uh, 
I think that's that's all from me. Was there anything else you wanted to add before I wrap up? No, just to say that I really do love what I do. Um, I feel privileged to be in the position, and um, I just um, really do enjoy representing all of you who put me here. Well, look, I'll I'll just say that I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I just want to let the listeners and viewers know he had no obligation to come on here and do this. He's a very busy man, so um, I'm very, very appreciative of the fact that you've taken time out of your day to come here and uh, uh, put this information out there uh, to the to the people to take in. So thank you very much. Yep, uh, so Reese Riley and um, Kiwi Talks, thank you for the opportunity. No worries. All right, thanks, guys. Until next time. Bye. Love Hamilton. <laughs>